So my question for anybody, and people, if you listen to this, certainly, don't take two guys from Yahooville, word for anything, man, we want to go to the Bible. We want to say, what does the Bible say? And I'm convinced that once you look at the Bible, yeah. you'll come out with gospel. Because to me, the message of the Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the announcement of what Jesus has done. Therefore Now Ministries presents the following message with Jim McNeely, the director and founder of Therefore Now Ministries, with Dax Swanson, pastor of Grace Church Bellingham in Bellingham, Washington. This is podcast number four, a conversation about Lordship Salvation. It was recorded March 20th, 2014 at Grace Church Bellingham in beautiful Bellingham, Washington. Enjoy. Okay, well, hello, this is Jim McNeely, and I'm here with my wonderful and close friend and pastor, Dax Swanson, uh, kind of my uh, fellow troublemaker in the gospel, and um, I wanted to uh, kind of interview him today because it's very interesting that... uh, he is coming from a background of having gone to John MacArthur's seminary, which is called King's College, right? Yeah, Master's Seminary. Oh, Master, what's it called? The Master's Seminary. The Master's Seminary. And you say the Lord's Seminary, shouldn't you? Oh, sorry, that's for a later piece. <laughs> right, and um, so he's kind of come through that and has actually become quite the screaming grace person. So I wanted to ask him some questions uh, because it's kind of a similar story to like a Muslim becoming a Christian in uh, probably even more dramatic, huh? Wow. <laughs> so I want to know the story behind that because I've had a few things to say on the website about uh, Lordship Salvation. And um, so, uh, Dax, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, kind of introduce yourself and tell us some of your, your history and how you ended up going to uh, the Master's College. I'm happy to do that. I think I think realize as we start these, hopefully a little series of podcasts for us, that we have uh, ex-physician, academic, master seminary guy, and a freewheeling computer programmer slash writer of books and sort of grace guy extraordinaire, Jim McNeely, and it's exciting for me to talk to him and to be with him, and it's an honor to interact with my brother. So hopefully these are a series of informative and a little bit provocative. Maybe we can be on different sides of stuff even sometimes, but the trouble is is that more and more we're on the same side, and I hope that still makes for interesting listening. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, my background is I'm I trained as a physician. I went to Princeton University, heavy-duty academic kind of stuff, and ended up desiring to know the truth of Scripture because I was overseas in Africa teaching out of my Bible some stuff I'd heard from somebody, and I realized, uh-oh, I'm not sure this is right. So I went back and prayed about where I should go to learn the truth of Scripture. And I'll tell you, I'd never heard of John MacArthur, but people speak glowingly of his ministry and, and of his um, holding high standards about the truth of God and, and the truth of Scripture and holding like taking a firm stand on what the Bible really says. So I thought, hey, and I had a, a, a pastor who told me that three men who were there at the seminary that he'd had when he was in seminary, and they were still alive and still teaching, and maybe I could get them to be my teachers, and, and I did before I retired. So I went down to the master seminary and went through in, in three years. I was student body president and worked for the church as Grace Community Church. And, you were student body president at the... Yes, I was. Really? And uh, Yeah, so in, in that whole thing, interacting with and being a part of and think very highly of the seminary. I think a lot of neat men who have given their lives to the Lord and sacrificed much to to be there. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, in the midst of that, what's the message is the question. And to have a high view of scripture, I think is fantastic. It's so important. But then you got to decide what is that message, right? I mean, if you're going to have a high view of it, what is it? Yeah. And that's, that's to me becomes the interesting piece for us in terms of particularly talking about this doctrine, which is, Lords of Salvation, and I mean, we do know Lords of Salvation is written in response to a guy named Zane Hodges, and them going back and forth, and we're not going to really deal with that 
Um, we don't really enact Zane Hodge as much. I don't right. really even know what the guy believes. So, but, but I do think that that the fact that it's polemical, which means argumentative, <laughs> sometimes means that uh, you take positions or you do things that maybe aren't quite as precise as you need to be. I think, or maybe you're taken because the other guy took the other side. And what I'm really interested in what does the Bible say, and what does the Bible say about this really core issue, which is, how do you go to heaven? So yeah. That's what we're going to talk about. Worship salvation. Okay. So, um, just to summarize, you studied medicine at Princeton. No, I went to Princeton undergrad. Oh, you went to Princeton undergrad. In UCSF in San Francisco for, for oh, medicine. Yeah. For medicine. Then you ended up in Africa? I did, as a missionary in Africa. A missionary in Africa. Uh-huh. After I practiced medicine a bit. Okay. And then uh, decided... To get some more Bible knowledge. Yeah, it's not for everybody's seminary, but I'm an academic guy and realized that that was the easiest way for me to learn and really get focused study in scriptures. So yeah. I went back to cemetery, I mean, sorry, seminary, and uh, and it was good for me. It was good for me. It wasn't cemetery, I joke. But. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then you were, you were, not only were you, you know, I mean, from my perspective, being at, at uh, what is it called, the Master Seminary? Yes. Being at the Master Seminary is kind of being like being in the heart of the beast. And then... <laughs> no. No. <laughs> I don't think so. But, 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 you know, being around brothers and sisters who love Jesus and giving their whole life to him? No, it's not the heart of the beast. Okay. That's too far. But I know what you're saying about this doctrine, so we, I want to dive in. I mean, we got to see. They actually put out... I mean, it's not like we're... You're, you're delving into some hidden thing. This is like, hey, this is what the core is. And they put it out on their website. They put it out at Grace to You, which is John's radio ministry. Big deal. It's like, this is what we stand for. He writes books about his famous books, really, were somewhat on this topic. Yeah, Hard the gospel believe, according gospel to Jesus. According to Jesus. Yeah. The gospel according to the apostles. Um, I, I hadn't read any of those when I went to school. And 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 even I would say that that from a worldly perspective, I bought into some of this stuff. Because I was good at it. So let me ask you, before we launch into the actual looking at the stuff, yeah. how how did you end up turning from the do- that doctrine toward I, a, a more gospel-centered uh, or, or grace-centered perspective? Well, what we want to do in this, I think in this, even our little talk today, maybe it extends over more than one, but but to me, I I think it's interesting. Is it biblically... Is it the biblical perspective? Is it what, what is the biblical perspective exactly? And how do you know? And and I think the the issue for many people is is that we get our theology from reading books or from someone telling us this is what the Bible says. And you don't open up the Bible yourself and go look. And I think that what I was beneficially trained for for seminary, so kudos to to the master seminary, that they said, Hey, we have a high view of scripture, go find it yourself. Um the difficulty was that one once I actually went and taught through Ephesians and taught through Colossians and taught through even James. I'm coming at a very different position than the guy who just telling me on the street, this is what you need to believe. So my question for anybody, and if you're listening to this, certainly, don't take two guys from Yahooville, word for anything, man, we want to go to the Bible. You want to say, what does the Bible say? And I'm convinced that once you look at the Bible, yeah. you'll come out with gospel. Because to me, the message of the Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the announcement of what Jesus has done. End of story. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, so anyway, my, my process is not so much a process because you're an eager young seminary guy. You're just absorbing everything. So that's what I did. I went and, hi, boy, I hold my teachers in high esteem. I hold John MacArthur in high esteem. He has many more years of ministry than we do. And it is not our position to tear somebody down particularly. I'm not after that. And I hope you're not either. And, I know that what we're after is, I want to know what the Bible says, humbly and before Christ, and that's all I need. That's all I want. Yeah. And, and But with that, let no man stand in your way. I mean, if there's something wrong, don't don't uh, be hesitant to, to go against that either. So we do that humbly, and but forcefully from the Word of God. Yeah, I would have to agree that the message of the Bible itself is what... We should be going to. We should be examining the text of Scripture itself 
and drawing our ideas about it from that. And uh, so, all right, well, that's uh, that's wonderful. And I did not know that you were president of the student body there, so that's, that's news, yeah. Yet one more <laughs> difficult uh, piece. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, all right. You know, in fact, I'm going to do something. So, Jim, Jim, have you always kind of been the grace guy? I mean, did you have to come to... I'm going to say grace guy, and we say gospel-centric, we say those things, but like standing saying, hey, the only hope we have is the righteousness of somebody else for me. Alien righteousness, if you will, is what I need. Have you always been there? I mean, you feel like you had to go through a piece yourself? Um, How did you get where you are today? Well, as for as long as I remember, as I can remember, uh, I was very serious. I've always been very serious about studying the Bible. Um, and not just reading it, I mean like making notes, looking up Greek things. I even took a Greek course and learned Greek. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, from the very inception of my faith, uh, it, it I won't give my full testimony, but it revolved around um, the, the meaning of Christ dying for my sins, yeah. right? And being very dissatisfied with people's uh, answers about what that meant. Sure. And so, you know, pretty early on, I got involved in a home church that was uh, run by a guy that was at Dallas Theological Seminary. Sure. And so they were going through the book of Romans when I joined, and they're right at Romans 3. Wow. Right? And so, I mean, one of the first things I did, and this is why I was a very young Christian, was get hold of a book, an entire book, on the meaning of the word propitiation. And I spent a weekend fasting and praying and reading and trying to understand that. So, so how long ago was that? Uh... It has it's probably 30 years ago. Yeah, so, and you still to this day, I would say, what pours out of you all the time to me is propitiation and the importance thereof. Yeah, about right. 30 years later. The centrality of the propitiation. Yeah, so I just think it's remarkable to me. The thing I would say is, is just because we're kind of doing introductory remarks almost is based on our background and trying to get people to understand. Well, here here I sit across from a guy who I, I love. He's a brother in Christ, but has a fairly, fairly what I would call charismatic background, at least from my yeah, from where I come from, fairly charismatic background, fairly home church slash non-denominational, kind of non-denominal, yeah, non-denominational kind of feel, and and I'm coming from what's would be a much more fundamental um, sort of taking pride in your in your holding to both tradition, but also to sort of exegetical accuracy, and 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 sort of very suspicious of any experiential anything. And yet here we are gathered around what's the main issue of scripture and hopefully finding that in the actual pages of scripture to say it's, it's Jesus Christ and in our relationship to him and he's done it all. Yeah. And if we don't get there, I don't know. I just think it's really neat that we can have from very different backgrounds and very different approaches and, 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 and end up in the same place because of the scriptures, because of the scriptures, and I would say the Holy Spirit, who guides us into actual truth of what the Bible means. So with that, I want to dive into Lordship Salvation. Okay. Is, define it for me. Like, How would you define it? You said, this is Lordship Salvation. Would you read, you want to read their piece, or do you want to... Yeah, I want to read their piece. Let me read it. This is from uh, gty.org, their document called An Introduction to Lordship Salvation. Um, so they say the gospel that Jesus proclaimed was a call to discipleship, a call to follow him in submissive obedience, not just a plea to make a decision or pray a prayer. Um, I think that in a nutshell actually does introduce the idea. It's called Lordship Salvation. So that means that the, 
the central idea behind the doctrine is the idea of lordship. Mm -hmm. And which means what they mean by that is that you do the things that the Lord dictates to you to do. Sure, making him Lord means, means I think in this mindset, means that you are actively seeking to, to kind of put him over every area of your life in some way. Yeah, and that all sounds wonderful until, you know, you fail, right? And the, the problem with it is that I don't need somebody to be my Lord as much as I need somebody to be my Savior. Sure, but back up with me for a minute, and let's take where they're coming from, because start in their shoes a little bit and think, okay, we're looking out at this very scary world out there where people are making confessions all the time and saying, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. And then if you follow, like in the in the context, say, of a Billy Graham crusade, you can pack a stadium with 45,000 people, and they have streaming people coming down because, you know, on the fourth rendition of just as I am or whatever it is. Here they come down to the, down to the stage where people are prepped to pray them through a prayer. And at least in the early Billy Graham years, not necessarily much follow-up. You go out and you're done. You're saved. You're going to heaven. And MacArthur looking at that and saying, wow, you know, only one person in ten actually goes to church then. or It just doesn't happen that people actually show the fruit in their, I'm going to give you their perspective, right. the fruit of a saved life. And so there's something wrong with that. And the wrongness is they're lying. They're saying in a moment that they're, that they're putting their faith in Jesus Christ, but they're really not putting their faith in Jesus Christ. They're just saying words. And the words that they're saying are not sufficient to get them into heaven because they don't believe the words. So the thing is, is that we've gone... In answer to that problem, which I agree is probably a problem. Sure. And we've jumped to to the conclusion that we should throw out, basically, uh, or, or, or at least heavily water down the um, efficacy or the power of the cross of Christ in saving us and instead make salvation be all about obedience and lordship well and discipleship that's the question question, isn't it is is what what does faith look like and how does the bible in context actually speak of these things and and as they present essentially because their their solution to that problem was you've got to turn first you've got to turn it's not just saying a prayer it's not even just saying a prayer and believing it which is, I think, getting more problematic. But it's, they would say, I think, it's not just believing a prayer. It's actually doing something. It's turning from something first. It's this idea of, although they say putting the Lord over every every life in lordship, what they really mean is, is there's an act of repentance that comes prior to, alongside, somewhere right in there, and, and is a component of your salvation. And can that be supported biblically? Is that something that's true? And and so I think it's important to look at their evidence that they're going to use, which we'll look at, to say this, is, this isn't this is like us saying, let's go find a few passages that go against them, and let's use our passages and use these difficult passages. And then what you come out with is, you know, oh, it's an irreconcilable difference in passages. And, you know, one of those just, I think they're called antinomies, that are hard to understand dichotomies in Scripture. Yeah, I, I don't think that this is one of them. I actually think this is more resolvable, and I think that it's resolvable with arguments that even their document might make um, about. And I think that's what I appreciate about you, Jim, is you. You're interested in reading these things. Jim has gone online and gone through in twenty twenty five blog posts of going through each of these statements, sometimes with more passion than others, and maybe sometimes further than I would go, but but always with I think an eye to this is the text they're using to support a Their position doctrine. that says a, a, a believing prayer is not enough. Right. And that's to me a very, very important distinction. 
is that you're not saying that everybody who says a prayer, I, I don't think, maybe you are, but you wouldn't say that everybody who says a prayer is going to heaven because I can say a prayer and not mean it. But everybody who says a prayer and believes in their heart that Jesus Christ can save them, i.e. They, they actually believe in Jesus with intellectual assent that he is their only hope. That person's going to heaven. I don't yeah. care what else they do for the rest yeah. of their life. I mean, really, I, I do think things will come out of their life downstream of that. And we can talk about that later. But the idea is, is that enough? And I think the answer is going to have to be yes. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we've got uh, John 3.16, the most famous verse sure. in the Bible ever. We that says, that uh, we, you know, uh, um, how does it go? For God's for God's love the for God, oh, no, <laughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, and the distinction is not lordship. It is not successful discipleship. The distinction is belief. Right. The difficulty is they're going to jam all those things into that word. They're going to say, hey, belief, yes. But what belief means is repentance and discipleship and fruit and and so you start taking belief and you start packing it full of you start trying to make that semantic range of that word cover the entire christian life which i think is not what john is doing right well and you can also go to another writing of john in first john uh you're the first john four guy. right and uh um where where he says uh, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. And I think he qualifies that very, very clearly, that it, he does not mean for the idea of belief to be packed with ideas of lordship and obedience and discipleship and successful uh, progressive sanctification. He means for it to mean that you believe that he loves you. Well, and that's the root issue behind The root issue behind this is do you think... Does belief consist of believing that God first loves us and saves us, or does it consist of me believing that I have to go through certain hoops or do any kind of certain things in order to persist in God's favor? Right, and so basically, even as they start their distinctives, their definition of the gospel is that the gospel was a call to discipleship, a call to follow him in submissive obedience, not just to make a decision, pray a prayer. They're taking that from the great commandment, I believe. I think they're saying that go into all the world and make disciples, teaching yeah. them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you. I mean, that those pieces, baptizing, teaching, to obey. That's great. Only realize that's that's not your primary text for what what it means to become saved. It's not. It's an instruction to the disciples of what they need to go do to the special group of guys who are founding the church. Right. And so here they have this special call on their lives to go do these things. And what you're going to do is go disciple people. Well, yeah, that means you're going to go proclaim the gospel. Right. Because a nice summary of that. And so the idea that from that you can take okay, um, follow Jesus in submissive obedience as your primary task. I, I would even have no problem with that if you're willing to define obedience in a certain way. I mean, it depends what you mean by obedience, I suppose. Well, yeah, we could go ahead and play the same trick they're playing with the idea of of belief and repentance and and make the word obedience mean what we want it to mean, which is to believe that Christ died for you and that uh, none none of your salvation is of your own merit or works. Right. That's obedience. That's right. You know, and of course, that's not fair to what they're saying here. No, that's not fair to what they're saying. But 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 it's so amazing. It says, here's a, it was, this is what they do say. I'm reading from their little introduction. It was an offer of eternal life and forgiveness to repentant sinners. Amen. At the same time, it was a rebuke to outwardly religious people whose lives are devoid of true righteousness. Amen. But as long as you realize true righteousness is Jesus Christ alone. So they're saying Jesus is slamming people because they don't have true righteousness. Yeah, and they can't get it. So uh, they're implying there that somehow there's a third category of people. Um, there's repentant sinners 
there's outwardly religious people whose lives are devoid of true righteousness, and then they at least imply there's religious people whose lives are full of righteousness. Themselves. Yeah. Right? I'm really worried. When I start to read that, I go, oh, well, I hope they're not... I hope they're not implying that because that's well, the, the, the I think that, you know, okay. But but let's assume that they're not and keep going because it keeps it keeps going. It puts sinners on notice that they must turn from sin and embrace God's righteousness. Again, that's a great statement if what you mean is it puts sinners on notice. They've got to realize they can't do it on their own and go grab hold of Jesus because he's true righteousness. I'm not sure that's what they mean. What's true righteousness? I believe they might mean, oh, because that's their focus on the first statement, that you need to follow Jesus in submissive obedience, and that's true righteousness. That would be a world of difference between what well, the Bible I think, says. I think that it's obvious that the, the, the thing is, what I think they would say is, well, yeah, of course, what we mean is true righteousness is that you have to actually you know, act and be righteous. You know, none of this uh, crazy, twisted, you know, theological mumbo-jumbo about, you know, you can be sinful, but Christ is our righteousness, and it's all uh, belief. And, uh, of course, that's twisting what we're saying, but that's the objection. You know, I want to call – I'd like to get your comment on this, uh, just looking at the whole document. Sure. All right, just an overall – couple overall observations. Um, for one thing – if you do a search in your browser on the document and look for the word blood or the word cross or the word uh, propitiation yeah. or justification, uh, you come up very spare. Sure. Um, this is a crossless gospel. It is a bloodless gospel. It is a gospel... Of deeds and not of faith. Well, uh, uh, okay, I, we can go there. I think that that's that, that's what that's I'm saying. Statement, right? I would say that, that was my main objection to the whole document. It's crossless, bloodless, and it, it doesn't put propitiation at the root of faith. Well, I think that's it puts mean. our deeds at the root of faith. Right. Um, but I think that's not. And again, you'll get when you put these things forward. And this is going to go online, or it's going to go somewhere people can hear it. You get, you'll get strong defenders of MacArthur because um, because he's a, a neat man of, the, of God, and he speaks truth. And what he does inspire also is loyalty, and some of that's very well placed because he's attacked by people who are wackos and don't believe in the gospel, and they just want to tear down a man. But some of it is real criticism and. I think needs to be looked at in terms of this sort of thing, because there is a, a paragraph in here, and that's what they'll point to. The distinctives of Lordship Salvation are still in the introduction, and it says, there are many articles of faith that are fundamental to all evangelicals. For example, there's agreement on the following truths. Number one, Christ's death purchased eternal salvation. They would take what you just said and said, you're lying. He clearly says, point number one, his very first point about what we agree on is propitiation. Christ's death purchased eternal salvation. Right, and I have to point out that I did a whole post where I took that statement right. uh, in that pair, all each of the statements in that paragraph, and went through each one and showed how they contradicted it directly in the rest of the document. Well, I think that's the thing that you've got to pull out is that is this idea that what happens is is that you do a nod to what the truth is, and then you go off to continue in your own path of whatever it is you want to say, and I think that to me so. I think what you need to do for this statement is take out that paragraph, this Lordship Salvation statement, is it does say there that Jesus Christ paid for all your sin, and your justification is in that paragraph. And and yet, to me, justification is not the afterthought to window dress something. It's the core of what salvation means. Right. So when you start talking about salvation, what Jesus Christ has done for you, justification is right at the heart of that, right at the heart of that, and cannot be. Um, push to the outside while we talk about some other deep meaning of salvation. No, the deep meaning is our justification reflected in the atonement and propitiation and all those great words that reflect the Christian faith that are used in the Bible. The difficulty with this that I have is what you're saying is that it's there. And so therefore 
as is the common in a lot of contexts. People will point and say, oh, no, no, he puts it there. Look, he believes in propitiation, justification, and he does. He's done, if you've ever listened to MacArthur's take on um, the, for example, the, the prodigal son, or but some amazing things that, that get to justification. The difficulty is this document that once you take that paragraph out, let's take it out and put it to the side and say, these are all things we all agree on, so we're going to put it to the side. Okay, then as he talks about salvation through here, they need to reflect those fundamental things we all agree on. And what you're pointing out is, and you did a great post on this, I thought it was very good. People should go read it. I forget what number it was, but whatever number it was, that one, to go through and see, okay, if, if we believe this, what do these pieces line up? And the problem is, in, in many instances... It's very difficult to line them up, um, and, and that's I'm trying to be generous. I mean, it's very difficult. For they don't to, line up. Well, yeah. I mean, I think they're very difficult. You got to do some like gymnastics to try and say, well, what he really means is this over here, and that's where people go. Well, what what they really mean is this over here. Yeah. But the difficulty is, is yeah. On the whole, they give a different emphasis. <coughs> so yeah, I think it's a problem. I think uh, that it's important. Like I'd like to go through like. Okay, so they basically what they did is they go through distinctions of lordship salvation first, and they have like these first, second, third, fourth <coughs> pieces. I'd like to take one of them, maybe the first one, maybe a different one, but and just show how they're using scripture because that's one of the things that really. If I have a pet peeve, so here we are gathered around the proper use of scripture, and we're gathered around a document from an institution that values the proper use of scripture, that that counts it as the highlight of their ministry. And so, unfortunately, what happens is is that you make a statement like these things, and then you list a bunch of scriptures. That's what's going on in this document. Right. So, for example, scripture teaches that the gospel calls sinners to faith, joined in oneness with repentance. And they parentheses and last list Acts 2.38, Acts 17.30, Acts 20.21, 20, and 2 Peter 3.9. Okay. But what doesn't do then is make sure that those scriptures actually say what you're claiming to say. And in this document, with me having a high view of scripture, that becomes really problematic because a lot of these scriptures don't say what the sort of opinion statement or statement of, quote, fact is saying. Right. That's a big problem. And it's one of the main things that's pushed me away from some of the Lordship Salvation stuff is that the scriptures don't actually say. Then that should be our main concern. Not, really, not, not yeah. that somebody can have an opinion about something and it's different than ours, but that it's it's not what Scripture says. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it's not what Scripture says, but in addition to that, this is kind of what I've been thinking about lately. This is where kind of my head's at these days. I'm hmm. I'm working on a series right now on the blog on uh, on the the declaration of the cross of Christ, and if you think about it. It is extremely crucial that we have a high view of Scripture and that we study the actual text of Scripture carefully for ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, when Christ came, you know, John was very clear that he is the Word made flesh, right? So there is a sense, you know, even however you want to take the word logos and look at its Greek roots and everything, there's a sense in which when Jesus came in the flesh, he is speaking to us. Amen. You know, he's speaking to us through his life, but you have to know that the greatest word that he spoke was his death and his resurrection. Amen. So he means to speak to us through the cross. And if we interpret the scripture in a way that it is, is at odds with the message of the cross, then we're not catching the right message of scripture. Sure. So, and if we want to take the message of the cross in a way that's contrary to Paul's interpretation of the message of the cross, then we're going at odds with the general message of Scripture. You can't you can't do these things where you say, well, it's the gospel according to Jesus, or it's the gospel according to Paul, or it's the gospel according to James, or something like that. It's not that. It's the gospel of Christ and Him crucified. And so if you want to take, you have to look at all of Scripture from the perspective of the cross. I mean, I, I agree with that. I think that my perspective would be that each of those, what you're talking 
is kind of saying a systematic theology of the cross, which I think is fine. But I also very much would affirm that the individual biblical theology of the cross, which would be taking each biblical writer's view of the cross and atonement, they line up. They, it's not like it's not like I need to take I need to sort of think that somehow Jesus's view of the cross was different than Paul's view. Of the oh cross, no, that's the thing. Different than Jesus' yeah. view of the cross, and I got to somehow reconcile them. To me, it works. They're the same, and 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 it and it hinges on this. It hinges on your only hope is in the death of Jesus Christ and what He did for you. That's your only hope. So abandon all other hopes, you who enter here. And I think it's summarized in the solas. I think. I think, for example, my seminary would affirm that. I think that MacArthur affirms that. The solas, which is yeah. Christ alone, grace alone, but faith alone. Uh, you have those sort of only statements. And yet, the difficulty is that we say those things, and then we lose them. Yeah. we got to go against them. So, and, and the, thing, uh, the thing that's interesting to me about this a little bit is, so watch out for. So you read this document and you get like these statements. Well, you can make statements about anything in Scripture and find little proof texts for them. I think you did on your blog. It was really fun. Yeah, I, I just got this right here. It's, your it's, list of women prophets. So you list like four different verses that have women as prophets, like Exodus 15, Judges 4, 2 Kings 22. So Scripture obviously teaches that only women are prophets. Parentheses. You know, and then I've got a whole bunch of a verses. A bunch of women prophets. Well... That's that doesn't prove your point at all. You know, it just gives me a list of scripture. But what it does do is it makes people who read it think, oh, this guy has scriptural support. So you got to be to me, and that's one of the difficulties with statements like this is there's there's not a lot of humility in it. There's a lot of saying this is an obvious truth statement, and if I list these four verses, you will see with obviousness that this is true. Right. So you go to the like you for example. This first statement, Scripture teaches gospel call sinners of faith, joined in oneness with repentance. And the very first scripture list is Acts 2.38. Well, Acts 2.38 goes to Peter's, like, preaching when he gives this message to the Jewish authorities about they've killed Jesus Christ. So, it, within that, he let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ. By the way, he is Lord. God made him Lord, not you need to make him Lord. But... In verse 37, they heard that this and were cut to the heart. They said to Peter, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay. Look, look, look. Proving our point. The word repent is there. Right. The word repent is but, there. But, 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 but wait. <laughs> but wait. But wait. Look at the context. They've killed Jesus Christ. What are they repent? What are they repenting of? I know they're repenting that they'll never kill the Messiah again. Yeah, the next time they like, promise. Yeah, whatever. There's a difficulty there. The difficulty is that, in essentially the re the repenting they're doing is is repenting of their dead works and turning to Jesus Christ, which is what salvation is. So you need to define. Well, see, that very you've just clearly. diverted back to this mumbo jumbo, crazy land. Mere belief, right? World of, you know, well, twisting I, I the idea of some, repentance to I mean guess, something crazy. Well, I guess in some in some people's and I'm desire, with you. I know, but that's the difficulty of trying to do a word study and making everything about a word instead of taking because this is a big deal in scripture. You got to take context. Context oh. is everything. Yeah, right. It's taught, it's taught in seminary. What's the first three rules of proper exegesis? Number one, context. Number two, context. Number three. Context. Context. That's it. Well, in context of this, right. this particular one where they pull out, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to use the word cherry pick. They cherry pick this verse because uh, it has the word text. repent. Yeah. Right? Sure. Well, in context, their sin was that they didn't believe that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. Right. They didn't believe he was the coming Messiah. So repent of that and instead believe that he is. Yeah, right. That's what repentance means. Right. It means it means to stop disbelieving it and to begin believing it. Right. So it's very difficult to say to me, within the context of conversion, and I think that's what we're talking about now, and I, I don't want to stay in conversion because I feel like this goes beyond conversion, but yeah. in the context of conversion, what conversion is, is saying, I cannot save myself. I have great need of a savior. And so you believe that Jesus Christ is your savior and that 
his work and his righteousness and his holiness and all of that is applied to you. And it's an amazing thing. Okay, does that involve repentance? Sure, if you define repentance as that turn from self-salvation to Christ's salvation, I would say that that's okay to call that repentance. Yeah. I wouldn't mind at all. In fact, I don't even mind saying repent of that and be baptized. Repent of your striving toward self-salvation and be associated with the death of Jesus Christ, which is your only hope forever. That's the context of this passage. Well, the the the... The reality, I think, is almost overwhelmingly in the New Testament, if you go and look at the verses that have the word repent or repentance in them, that's what they mean. It's always about repent and believe in the gospel. The only time where you can find somewhere where it means repent of your works is John the Baptist giving the law its last hurrah. But when Jesus comes along, it's always about repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe that I'm the Messiah. Right. So you're repenting of a very specific thing. And, and, and almost to me, it's covered by this idea where Jesus, and, and again, not to get stuck on a word, I believe, I mean, I'm preaching through Luke right now. I believe if you preach through Luke, you, you get smacked in the face over and over that Jesus is just pouring out. You have great need. If you will just see your need, all you need to do is see your need. And, 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 and I'm the answer to that need. So, yeah. So this idea that you know he he's, he comes and the sinners come after him. He's going after the sinners. Why is he going after the sinners? They see their need. They're like they're 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 flagrantly like I can't believe it. God's reaching out to me, and so that this idea of if you see your need, you you believe, and and it's the the faith doesn't save you. It's Jesus who saves you, but it's you coming to him through this process it's fine to say you repent and believe but you got to mean that you can't mean i stopped in order for me to come to jesus i stopped stop my homosexual behavior because because i need to make jesus lord and therefore i'm not a christian unless i do that the reason why you can't do that is that is that jesus didn't do that and the gospels never do that right it never does that if when you when when the pharisees came and challenged jesus for hanging out with and eating with sinners and tax gatherers and prostitutes jesus did not respond by saying oh well wait a minute you don't seem to know but they've made me lord and they repented and they're they're not like that anymore right Right, sure. It, you know, you, you ha- they're like you now, right? No, steady. You know, it's just not his answer at all. No, the, what he answers with is the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep and in, in, in the lost uh, the prodigal son. And sure. amazingly, these parables are parables in which. The lost coin is helplessly lost on its own, and someone else comes and finds it. And he goes on to define that dynamic as repentance. Right? Right? So you can't just chuck all of Jesus's. That is the gospel according to Jesus. Right. The gospel according to Jesus, the difficulty is, at least what I've found in my teaching now, is the difficulty is that he's spoken parables a lot, and people are willing to twist parables to mean, I think, things that Jesus wasn't saying. Yeah, And if you're honestly looking at what Jesus is saying, it's more radical than we're willing to make them. Because in spite of our idea that we're the fundamental believers in the Bible, therefore we believe in miracles, we don't really believe in the miracle of a radical God coming to get us and, and in spite of our sin. And, and, and this amazing gift that falls out of the sky of God's salvation for the nations. And here it is. Just take it in. We won't believe it. And therefore... Our problem is unbelief. Unbelief. And that's what we need to repent of. Right. That's the main piece, and especially talking this conversion area. That's that's what Jesus is after. Well, belief is the narrow door. That Amen. it is the narrow true. way. That's right. Belief. Yep. Mere belief. And the problem isn't that people just have mere mental assent in, in, in a prayer. The problem is they don't have enough mental assent. They haven't come to know enough to believe in the love that God has for us. That's right. You know? So, all right. And, you know, I, I have to add, too, it, it, because we're talking about how how they, what's your word, proof text, they use proof text scriptures. 
well, and then, and then they use here. the words differently. And I can understand how you come and say, well, now the word repent, you can't just take that and make it mean whatever you want. Uh, the word repent means to, uh, you know, make a, a change and to determine not to continue in the same path of sinfulness. Well, it means there had there you can't you can't strip that of behavioral change. Repentance means behavioral change. Says who? That's what the word means. I'm I don't I don't think that. But what I want to press is that in order to to interpret the word repentance in that fashion, in all of these cases in the gospels and elsewhere, you have to strip it of context and 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 press that definition to the word by itself. Right. Right? And, I mean, I just have to say that I think, as a thinking, uh, concerned Christian that has been gripped by the the tale of the Bereans who go and examine yeah. these things for themselves, yeah. that that way of looking at Scripture does not hold up. Well, I think mean, that's what we're saying. Is to me, it, this is not a challenge to go take down my seminary, who I love. Uh, man, I love them. I, I want them to grow in this area. This is a challenge to say, go to Scripture and look at the context. And, yeah. And I think that as you do, the difficulty is with this area, and you're bringing out a very good point to me, which is the word metanoia, which is which is the main word for repentance. You try and load it with meaning when the range of the word actually is quite wide. Um, repentance can mean along with a change of behavior. It can. It's not like it can't mean that. Oh, no, it can never mean that you change your behavior, too. It just very much can also mean changing your mind. Right. Like, metanoia, mind. it means to change Literally, that's your mind. Literally. That's the, what the Greek so, means. So, yeah, so to try and load it up with a, a, a deeper theological meaning of you, you're doing a U-turn. I just, the whole that whole concept to me is a very hard one to get through the door of scripture's teaching mostly because you have stuff like if it's really repentance let me do a little thought process with you okay so let's accept the idea for a minute which i do not accept okay that, that repentance is a 180 degree turn okay because that's how it's oftentimes done in this in these sorts of settings what you need to do to repent is turn 180 degrees from where you were and go the other way so you just literally this picture of you walking and you turn around 180 degrees and walk the other direction Turn from your sin, repent, okay? Change your mind, repent. Right. So my difficulty with that is, okay, I have got, I have Jesus talking to his disciples. This is just one instance. I mean, there, you, you get lots of things like this where it's a trouble. But Jesus talking to his disciples, and they say, you know, how often do we have to forgive somebody? Well, if your brother repents every time, basically 70 times 7, right? Just for, besides, right. you can count more, way beyond what's required in the, you know, Torah, and the, the issue there to me that I have then is, okay, the, the very much the sort of the idea is is that it's the same sin. Your brother came up and slugged you one and then said, oh, I repent. And you're supposed to forgive, forgive him. Okay, and then he does it again. Wait and a minute. Oh, 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 wait a minute. Didn't he just turn 180 degrees and walk in the other direction? Isn't that what repent means? Okay, problem. It can't be what repent means. Because you're supposed to keep doing it while the guy does this little circle, I guess, and walks away from you and then walks back and walks away from you. I guess that's the image you have to have if you view repentance as changed behavior because otherwise, why is Jesus saying keep on keep on forgiving? No, keep on repenting and keep well, on forgiving. Keep on, yeah, exactly. Why in the world would you have to keep on turning? You turned. Right. So I, I think even in this thought that turning is this heartfelt 180-degree thing, well, okay, as long as you mean it's only going to last 3.2 seconds or something. <laughs> well, you know, I also have to add something to this. Yeah. I think that the idea of behavioral repentance is wonderful. Yeah. Of course I do. Sure. If somebody is surfing porn, I would definitely like them to stop doing that. Amen. It's terrible it is porn. damaging. That's right. Right? They need to somehow, they need help, they need to, whatever needs to happen. Yeah. I agree. And, and, and by being in this area, we're not disagreeing with the horribleness of sin. Right. And the need what I am them. saying is, when you tie that idea of repentance directly 
to what the meaning of the gospel is and to the essential nature of salvation and justification, you have just stolen the reins from God Almighty for the architecture of our salvation and taking it on yourself. Well, that's the that's the, one of the main issues, isn't it? The, one of the main issues is is therefore is salvation not a work of yours? Because you, the hurdle is your repentance that you're going to work on before you get to Christ. And I do think that's that's one of the issues here for sure. They get around that. The, there's a workaround that they're doing essentially by strongly affirming the sovereignty of God in salvation, monergistic salvation. So essentially what you're saying is is that God reaches down and regenerates you. And so you have irresistible sanctification. That's the phrase I've heard. That people uh, that's not what I mean at all. No, actually, that's uh, yeah, I, that, that's not what they would say at all. So maybe you've heard that, but no, they would say that's irresistible grace. They would say it's number four, but and that's sort of the tulip. No, no, what I'm getting at is this. I'm getting at um, if it's all God anyway, then I can get out of the argument of you put a hurdle to to my work. So if they can emphasize, oh no, salvation is all God's work anyway, and regeneration is act of the Holy Spirit, it comes prior to your conversion. So therefore, the Holy Spirit regenerates you, you turn, but it's not really you, you see, because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then you put your faith in Jesus. So it's this concept of it's the Holy Spirit driving it all, so don't talk to me about you're putting a hurdle for a person. Of course it's a hurdle, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit that gets you through it. Yeah. So that's a view of salvation that sort of takes away this idea of um, it matters that there's uh, essentially a hurdle um, between you and salvation. And, and they would not at all acknowledge, my friends who are in this camp, would not at all acknowledge that it's a hurdle. They would say, no, no, it's part and parcel of belief. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, So, but I see it as a hurdle. I mean, because I think that you can't both argue that it's an actual change of behavior and argue that it's not a hurdle. Right. Because if you don't have that change of behavior, then you aren't saved. Well, I also think there's a thing. You know, I'm very simplistic about these things. Sure. Right? It, it's a problem to tell people, what when, you, when you're asking someone to repent in a behavioral sense in order to have true faith, right? Right. Uh, saving faith. Sure. Um. You're asking them to promise a change for the rest of their future, which is a promise they can't possibly honestly make. Right. The difficulty is they're opening the door to people even thinking that. The promise of, because because that's not at all what repentance repentance is a heartfelt change of mind about who Jesus is. Abandoning right. your dead works and seeing Jesus. Exactly. That's it. And so there's there's the heart already engaged. As opposed to a force of will, I'm going to clean up my outside in order to make myself acceptable to God. So you're reversing what you think acceptability to God is. And But, but you see, they don't mean that, I would say. They don't, because I'm going to read from their fourth distinctive here. Yeah. It says, Scripture teaches that real faith inevitably produces a changed life. Salvation, salvation, it says, salvation includes a transformation of the inner person. Okay, so I, I have to say, and I had fun with this one, but <laughs> what they're saying is you have to embrace a tautology because you have to say saving faith means that you have to repent of your sin. And then if you have saving faith, you will not sin. Well, you already defined saving faith as not sinning, so of course saving faith means that you will, you know, ha- uh, uh, have a transformation of the inner person. In other words, to have true faith, you have to change your life to even approach. You have to repent. And then they're saying real faith inevitably produces a changed life. It's a tautology. But, yeah, I, I guess I, I get what you're saying. The problematic piece of that for me is that um, I think that we would agree, both of us and I think people in general, that given time, um, real faith inevitably produces a changed life. That there's 
there's fruit that happens in your life if you're a Christian. God produces it in you. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it like that because I think it's it's misleading, especially in light of the scriptures they're giving us support, which I would like to talk about in a minute. Okay. But but first, I think that it, it's not sad to me to think that the headwaters of your life, being your you know Jesus Christ alone and believing in Him alone, is what saves you. Downstream of that somewhere, you might produce lots of good fruit. Because you abide in the vine, John 15, and all these things and images of Scripture about how through you, the Holy Spirit, you're, you're doing the works God's prepared for you beforehand to do, Ephesians 2.10. You, these, these things that are happening in you, that's cool. That's, that's actually, I, we want that. Yeah. Nobody's saying. Because that's the, the thing that will come back on you from attacking, quote-unquote, Lordship Salvation is, oh, you want people to lie on the couch and eat bonbons. No, nobody's saying that you're nobody's not going to produce that. fruit. So. The difficulty is scripture, scripture teaches real faith in, inevitably produces a changed life. And, and they use 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the whole Bible, 15 to 21, that essentially says, your ambassadors for Christ. Why? Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him you might be the righteousness of God. Right. Dude. So you got this statement saying, Jesus Christ became sin. So that you could become the righteous, not so you could earn yourself, work yourself up into his right, but so that you're called the righteousness of God. Jim, you're the righteousness of God. And then they say this next line. Listen to this. I mean, this is just remarkable to me. Salvation includes a transformation of the inner person. Quote, in parentheses, Galatians 2.20. Another one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Let's read that one, too. Okay. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Dude. I mean, the same thing where you're saying salvation includes a transformation of the inner person. Okay, let's define that transformation. Your death and your only life is in Jesus. Okay. My only hope is in Jesus. That's my life. Right. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the one. So to, to say, to, to me, torque that with a wrench and say, this is about you changing your behavior. When what it's about is you believing in the change that comes through faith in Jesus and your hope in his righteousness, your hope in his atonement. Uh, I'm kind of left gasping a little bit. Like, I feel like there's a big deal there that they're, I don't know, that just the emphasis is not what it should be. No, not at all. And and they go on kind of saying that, that uh, yeah, the unbroken pattern of sin and enmity with God will not continue when a person is born again. They do these things. And, and the difficulty is it's all focused on the flesh of the believer, kind of. It's like kind of they, they toss you in. And to me, this is a big deal in what we're working through as a church and as a, uh, a nation right now, a nation of churches, if you will is this idea of not putting people back on the treadmill of their dead works. Putting people back to say, yeah, you were saved by faith. Oh, Jesus did a mighty work for you. Now, go get more acceptable. Will you clean yourself up? Because he's ticked that you're sitting there all right. dirty. And, and, and what that does is it takes away this idea that Jesus Christ became sin so that you might become righteousness. It takes away the finished work of Christ. It takes away the overwhelming presentation in Scripture that your sanctification is done. And not that we don't act. There's, there's, there's things that we do. We actually act far more powerfully. Oh no, no, of course. Yeah, no, I'm with you. We act far more powerfully. But the difficulty is that if you actually look up sanctify and sanctified and sanctification, ninety eight percent of the time it's talking about what Jesus or the Spirit or God the Father has done to you. Right. Not what you're doing in order that you might be acceptable to Him. It can't work that way. You can't get acceptable to God. No. That's our whole problem. You know, and the other thing that I have to point out is that given the paradigm of this document sure. um, and the fact that it's functionally, let's say that, it's functionally crossless, it, they, they give a nod to it. Right. Okay, so go. It's Make your functionally point. crossless. Okay. It... it they would horribly disagree, of course. Oh, well, of course okay. they would, but it is. Okay. You know, um, that it is impossible for regeneration and for the Holy Spirit to come through these kinds of self-effort, self-merit kinds of uh, mindsets um, where 
effectively, and it betrays their hand when they say things like that we should make him Lord. Because that makes me the Lord. Me the decider, the judge. I'm the, the judge and decider who decides to right. make, to establish. Right. It puts you over the Lord in some Jesus way. as Lord over me. I'm the deciding factor. It is a big problem. And, you know, I've had pushbacks it's like, well, that's not really what we mean. It's like, well, then stop saying that. You know, stop asking. I mean, and, and this isn't just a thing for MacArthurites. This is a, a, a huge mindset in the evangelical church at large. I was at a church sure. before where we're talking about doing baptisms. And I'm like, well, how do we decide who's ready for a baptism? Right? Shouldn't we have some kind of catechism or some kind of? Oh, can we please do a teaching? podcast later on that? Yeah, teaching about that. And the whole, the whole, the, the idea was like, well, right. you know, if they've made Jesus Lord, right. then we should let him get baptized. And it's like, how do you know whether or not they've made him Lord? Oh, and to me, it's worse than communion. You, you, you get people who don't get communion because they're they're feeling like they're not behaving well enough. Yeah, we could do. We need to do a whole podcast on that too. Yeah. But you know, I think we need to wrap it up here. But it, it just just wrapping it up. We could go on and on. I want to say one more thing. Can I? Can I? Oh yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Check one thing and then wrap us. Here's my other one thing because you're pointing out one of the big problems. One of the big problems is is that that you just said. To me, another of the big problems that don't get addressed in a document like this is the clear statements in Scripture that people call Jesus Lord and are told by God that they don't. He, he doesn't know them. So you actually have in the Gospels where Jesus says, "There's people who do great works in my name and they do mighty works and mighty deeds." And God says to them, and they're saying, and they use the word Lord. I think they use the word Kyrios, which is the word for Lord. Yeah. And it says, he turns to them and he says, I didn't know you. So to me, the simple statement of, I made Jesus Lord. And what you mean is that you did works of obedience for Jesus that are external works that are easily seen by people. I think that's a fallacy that that is a part of your Christian faith because there's demonstrably a group of people who called Jesus Lord and did mighty works for God and were not known by Jesus. So this is the danger in Lord's salvation is you are making something and adding to the gospel to me, which is a declaration of what Jesus Christ has done. And once you do that, once you start injecting in these pieces into the gospel and making more, you are doing what the Pharisees did. You're not a legalist. I'm not accusing people of legalism here. This is not legalism. This is adding to and it's unfortunately based on, to me, the wrong emphasis of Scripture, the wrong emphasis of exegesis of these passages, and primarily because you're not looking at the context very well, and you're trying hard to look for the words that you want. Once you do that, you're making a big mistake in terms of how you end up. And you can end up in something like this, and the, the tragedy of this is thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, think that this is being good Christianity, is my external obedience to God, is what is making me acceptable to God. And if I don't do that, I'm not saved. Instead of thinking, I'm saved. And my glorious response is I want to live in a way that Jesus says is best for me. Right. Um, you know, in, in, in wrapping up, one of the telling signs about this whole doctrine is that, you know, I get emails from people Responding to the Lordship Salvation doc, uh, uh, posts I've made, thanking me profusely okay. because they've been at the edge of suicide under this teaching and have despaired of their faith, have despaired of going to church because they cannot live up to the, I have to say, rather vague uh demands for, you know, quote, discipleship and, and uh, uh, you know, a passionate commitment to follow Christ. It's vague, and it's something that you can always interpret yourself as failing at. And there are a good number of people. I even had an email where someone told me that, that someone that had despaired in that way of being able to live up to this doctrine had actually killed themselves oh, after going to a MacArthur conference with a church group. Yeah. He killed himself. Yeah. And and then I've had a number of other people calling that they're struggling with suicide because they can't do it. And you know what? 
I want them to come to you and to me and to come to Grace Bellingham and to come to the Therefore Now website and to your blog. What's what's your practicalgrace.org. Practicalgrace.org and Tolian's site, liberate.org and Mockingbird and all these sites and to just wash their minds and to be transformed right. in their mind into th- interpreting their lives in light of the love that God has for us. Because this is really transforming. To, to understand that, that your salvation is in Christ alone and your righteousness and your holiness and your living. It's like, wow, that's only Jesus. It's, it's transforming. It's right. free. It's liberating. We're, we're the pearl right. that God forsook everything else to obtain. Sure. And yeah. so, you know, when you start looking at yourself like that, it it opens the door to a genuine right. uh, transformation. But transformation is not the goal. We're not idolizing our transformation. We, we're worshiping Christ, who is our transformer. Right. And that's a big change in emphasis because yeah. for so long the, the church traditionally emphasized personal holiness when that's not the focus of, of G, a, a challenge, anyone, go through the Gospels and read what Jesus said. Jesus, uh, forget Paul, who's way more on this side, but Jesus Christ, after your personal holiness, seriously, that's what you think? Because it's just not there. No. And and it's not to say that you don't, you don't work on personal holiness, but to put it at the center, to put it at this emphasis that we put it on, whereas week in, week out, that's what people hear. I'll tell you what people need to hear week in, week out. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they need to hear because we forget it. And the world hates it. And it wants to steal the reality of what Jesus has done for us and take it away. May it never be done. But that means, boy, we got to remind each other. we got to stay in scripture to make sure we get there. Yeah. All right. Well, super. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this time with Dax Swanson and me, Jim McNeely. We, we both hope to do this a lot more. Uh, now you've heard a little bit of the story and of the mindset of someone who has was a student body president <laughs> at uh, uh, yes he raised that up and, and, and make it work isn't that just terrible we do the same thing who cares what does it matter doesn't matter well to me it's it's like you're a Hebrew of Hebrews ah, yes. that Blowed out is done. Counting it all rubbish. Right? Counted it it as rubbish. So you've you've heard it from the horse's mouth here. I hope you guys enjoyed this and hope to talk to you again really soon. Thank you for listening to this message from Therefore Now Ministries. You can find many more messages and find a schedule of upcoming speaking and teaching and music events, as well as a great wealth of grace-based ministry materials at thereforenow.com.